Here's the story of two dental hygienists from opposite sides of the world who became friends because they realized their professional lives were so in sync. One in Australia and one in America, both exuding their high passion for high-level patient care, both pushing back on legacy dentistry. If you are ready to revolutionize the practice of dental hygiene through science and innovation, join us as we are Disrupting Dentistry. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Disrupting Dentistry podcast. If you are new here, welcome. And if you are a disruptor, welcome back. Thanks for being here. I am your American dental hygienist, Melissa. And I'm your Australian dental hygienist, Tabitha, and we are super excited for today's episode because we are recording with specialist orthodontist Derek Mahoney from Australia. And I'm really, really excited to have Derek on here today because he is the original disruptor <laughs> for orthodontists <laughs> in Australia. And he really fits with the theme for our podcast of someone that's come in and said, hey, guys, we can do this better. And it's what Derek has done for orthodontics around the world and for children really is amazing. And I think it's a really important story that we share that everyone understands what he's done, but also to be aware of what we still need to keep doing and, and the legacy that we need to keep carrying on for him as well, because he's worked really hard and made lots of enemies in the world. <laughs> By disrupting, you know, and, well, and, bravo. and he has, you know, he's gone out there and disrupted it in a way that hasn't always been everyone been friendly to him, but he's done the right thing all the time and really pushed for the right move for health. So I think that is amazing. We give him a little clap. But Derek, before we get started about what you've done and how you disrupted orthodontics, can you tell us you've graduated high school? What made you want to start dentistry to begin with? I, I actually had no idea what I wanted to do when I finished from my high school, truth be known. And, you know, I came from a first-generation migrant family and the, the deal was you either became a doctor um, or a lawyer or an engineer or you just didn't come home. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> so there's that sort of pressure. <laughs> and I, I like your, I like you talk about um, made numerous enemies in my profession i always say to people when i die i'll probably have the most number of people in my in my funeral um probably 90 percent will be there to make sure that i'm going six foot under uh if you, <laughs> <laughs> um, you're going to talk about my orthodontic colleagues but maybe 10 percent uh, i include you in that tabitha uh, maybe <laughs> generally sad <laughs> yeah i'll be sad <laughs> Yeah, no, look, I, I actually had no sort of, you know, vision in my sleep and uh, I woke up and I knew I wanted to be that dentist. It was just nothing like that at all. And, in fact, um, I missed out by med school, like, by two marks. You know, back back in the day when I did high school, you got marked out of 500 and, like, um, med school was, like, 498 and dentistry was, like... 480 whatever right so I, I i missed out by med school by literally two marks i kind of remember that and it was a case of oh geez now what do i do um so uh i thought i'd do dentistry and then after the first year you could it's a pretty easy deal to try and transfer over but i actually kind of enjoyed um the dentistry and i I'd had like a good group of friends in the first year of uni so oh, yeah, this is cool i'll just keep doing this right 
Um, but first two years of uni in dentistry, no clinical. It was like literally rehash of um, biochem, physics, uh, biology. Uh, when I actually started doing clinical, I really how much I realized how much I really hated dentistry. <laughs> like uh, the first <laughs> clinical prac we did was setting waxing up teeth on a denture, um, and we had this like you know the worst demonstrator in the world that didn't want to be there, didn't like students, was just there because she was doing research and like she was um, you know the introduction to clinical dentistry. And our second clinical prac was, um, you know, doing root canal on an extracted molar in a resin block, you know. And I just, my God, I thought, what do I do here? I've already invested two and a half years. It's going to be pretty sad if I dump out. So I just kept going and then um, kind of graduated and gave my degree to my dad on the day I graduated. I said, here, this is for you. You wanted this. I'm so not doing this. (laughs) Uh, and you know, my parents were like, oh, they were like really happy that I passed dental school. And as a graduation present, they, they bought me a, um, around the world ticket, you know, in between, you know, that three months from when you actually get your notification to when you can actually start practicing when you get, yes, yeah. yeah, so it's like it was a lot, three, four months. Anyway. So I, I, I took advantage of that and, um, I, I, I went to, uh, Back then, you you did this around the world through New Zealand, um, South America, around Europe, back through Asia, back home. And I got to Brazil, and I absolutely loved the place and kind of like um, uh, had this Brazilian girlfriend who was an orthodontist, right? And um, what she was doing was like so cool and so amazing. And so like I thought, my God. And remember, in dental school, I had a... We had, we had a topic called orthodontics, and it was a one-hour lecture. In five years, we did a one-hour lecture in ortho, and I, 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 I probably probably shouldn't name who the lecturer was, but let's just say it was a older-type orthodontist. And the lecturer was like, if you guys try any orthodontics, you will be in front of the dental council, and, you know, you, you'll uh, – we, we, we'll, uh, we, we'll rip your heart out of your uh, body. So it was like – the lecture was all about how to refer all your cases to an orthodontist. Um, so that's all I knew about ortho, right? So, so then here am I, kind of despondent. Oh, geez, do I go back and and try med school, which is I thought would have been a cool thing, or do I actually invest this five years into doing something? And so, just luckily, I, I met this orthodontist, and I, you know, I, I I got involved in this whole sphere of um, growth guidance and airway and early treatment. And I thought, man, this is like really what I want to do so um yeah so that's what that so that's a a, a long long-winded answer to a short story but I don't want anyone to think that yeah my dad was a dentist and his dad was a dentist and I was always going to be a dentist and no way it was just like um just being in the right place at the right time maybe realize I could actually use my degree for something worthwhile um as opposed to start again that's the truth yeah <laughs> and so you, so obviously you got influenced by some people that were doing, you know, a different type of orthodontics because really what was traditional orthodontics for my childhood and most likely your childhood, Melissa and Derek's, was they took four teeth out, they um, straightened them up that way and looking at the whole body really wasn't a thing for a long time. Um, 
what made you realize quite quickly that's not the type of orthodontist you wanted to be? Well, number one, my own orthodontic experience. I, I was a really mild, crowded class two, div two, right? Um, you know, Helen Keller could have treated me uh, with some simple appliances. <laughs> Um, but I had this. Oh I had this orthodontist that like gave me headgear and then took out um, four by cuspids just to boot. You know what I mean? And uh, I was pretty diligent at yeah. wearing my elastics. I mean, so like you know, I'm so biskeletally retracted, and I didn't realize. You just think you know, as a you're a teenager, you just sort of think, oh, well, that's cool. So I, I, I had straight teeth, which were never crooked to begin with, by the way. Um, but then I had my upper incisors like retrocline back towards my tonsils. Um, uh, and, um, I then started developing, you know, in dental school, uh, joint pathology, uh, started like not sleeping as well, started snoring. Uh, and then you know, I, I didn't really think anything was correlated until I now understand what damage was done by, uh, the old retractive orthodontics. So I guess that was a start. Um, uh, and, and the second part was just meeting people who had done the old school stuff and then were showing this new pathway where you treat early, you work with growth, you, you bring the jaw forward, not back, uh, and just totally different stuff. I mean, the list of people I've been influenced with, you know, is huge, but I, I put John Mew up there uh, with his sort of um, bioblock, um, Professor Stenland Aronson with his um, airway and breathing through your nose versus mouth breathing for getting a, a better looking face, uh, John Witzig uh, for the whole what happens when you're attracted by cuspids uh, in certain cases. You're just, just lots of people that um, that uh, I did, no one had like a it, it's not like a religion, like, you know, where you, you just have to follow one guidebook and that's it. I just sort of borrowed from what I thought was working for people and tried to um, put it back into a, a private practice. So when I came back to Australia to, to work as a specialist, um, I'd already done three years of training overseas um, and I knew that when I came back, I wanted to do something different. Uh, when I came back to Australia, and this is over 30 years ago, no orthodontist was doing phase one, like as in arch expansion, uh, mixed dentition stuff. Ortho was the classic wait to the permanent dentition. Uh, and I always remember in Sydney, the saying was, you know, men are men. And premolars are always nervous, right? Like if you were, if you're an orthodontist, I'm sorry, if you're a premolar, <laughs> you'd be looking over your shoulder all the time. It was just a done deal. Like for less than I don't know three, four millimeters of crowding, people are getting four by cuspids removed. And you know, mm -hmm. when I speak to parents today uh, that um, had treatment back when I had treatment, they all had the same experience. And uh, so, I mean, things have changed. I, I don't want to think that. That, you know we haven't evolved i think we've evolved a huge way but geez it took a lot uh of um, thinking outside the box um and i'm just so happy right now in my profession and what i do you know when you you think back if i had this time again what would i do i would not have changed the thing if i could have missed the first five years of dental school and gone straight into ortho school doesn't quite work like that <laughs> um but um uh but my orthodontic experience and uh, the ability to really change people's quality of life rather than just give them straight teeth, you know, help them sleep better, help them be more focused in class because they are sleeping better, 
um, help them have a better relationship with their parents who, you know, probably want to kill them at this stage because of their ADHD type behavior, uh, you know, all, all this sort of stuff. Um, and, and I put it down to just kind of looking at the bigger picture. And I think in dentistry, we're doing that. I mean, remember back in the days when you guys learned perio, there was no link to uh, cardiovascular problems or right. things like that. It was just purely like a, a gum gardening type course, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> but, um, but now, man, this is the, the oral cavity and oral manifestations in the, um, in the mouth uh, are sometimes the uh, precursors of, of, of a lot of systemic uh, things. I, I listened to a, uh, a Texas TEDx talk on by an amazing dentist on how important the oral uh, the oral cavity is as a, um, a, a as an early detector of lots of medical problems. She almost put it down to like the canary uh, down in the um, coal mine or the a bunch of yeah. roses in front of your vineyard when you know they they they'll pick up the problem initially. Really, really good podcast. Yeah. And um, why do you think dentistry as a whole was so apprehensive about stopping to extract and doing it differently? Because, you know, surely it, how could it, what, we'd always want to keep teeth when you can. Like what, what was the big resistance there? Is it just because it's so much easier, like quicker to do it when extracting teeth? Yeah, look, that's a good question. And I would say that parents were definitely not resistant. I mean, to parents who made common sense, right? Um, but I don't know, maybe if you're an orthodontist um, and you've been doing the same old, same old for 20 years and you have a successful practice and you don't have to actually kind of think too much outside the box, it's probably a really good business model, right? How many times have you heard parents say, oh, yeah, I go to that orthodontist, it's like a production factory. There's 10 chairs uh, and, you know, he spends uh, 0.1 minute with my kid and then he moves on to the next kid, right? I mean... Australia's probably not as bad as the U.S., though. <laughs> In the U.S., it's kind of like harem orthodontics, right? Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> um, but, yeah, uh, yeah but the, so, so the point is maybe, I don't know, I, I can't really answer that. When I realized there was a better way, I just wanted to do the best for my, um, my patients. And thank God, all my, when I had kids, I'd already been doing this stuff, and all my kids had early treatment, all was treated non-extraction, you know, both um, – uh, my ex-wife uh, and myself, we, we, we both had four teeth out. So, you know, if you understand, if you think that genetics and orthodontics is a, is a thing, I, I don't think it is. I don't think crowding is called by, caused by genetics, but it's caused by a lot of epigenetic factors, you know, mm -hmm. mouth breathing, um, thumb sucking, tongue tie, the list goes on, and things that you can intercept early uh, and then help develop the jaw. And if things go awry, um, you know, the, the, the American Orthodontic Association, I think, is a lot more progressive than our specialist group. I mean, they, they promote um, consultation by age seven. You don't hear that here in Australia. And by seven, you can do so much. Um, uh, the, the maxilla is at its, um, uh, you know, uh, growth spurt. So if you've got a narrow jaw or you've got a maxilla that's too far back, you can do so many powerful things where if you wait like I used to, uh, till the kid's 12, 13 and has the adult dentition, you've missed that whole um, growth guidance. Um, yeah. And all you're doing is really moving the teeth to camouflage or compensate for the real problem, which could be the class two or the class three or the narrow maxilla or whatever. 
And for those of our listeners, because we obviously have listeners from all over the world who are thinking, what does mouth reading have to do with, you know, teeth and its alignment? Can you kind of give a, a little bit of a, you know, an explanation of why we want to be breathing through our nose? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of reasons you want to breathe through your nose from systemic health and better quality sleep. And um, we all know if you have a head cold um, and you have a head cold for three days, what's your quality of sleep during those three days? It's terrible um, because you don't get enough oxygen. You're you're you're, um, dehydrating, right? Um, But from the point of view of facial growth, um, there's been so much, uh, so many classic studies. If you look at Harvold, um, with his monkey studies where he plugged up uh, the monkey's nostrils and those who adopted an open mouth posture ended up with um, narrower palates, more crowding, more uh, retinathic uh, mandibles. Uh, and then you go to all the human studies where they've looked at facial growth in kids who were mouth breathing versus nasal breathing. Um, and, and this is the, the basic um, premise, okay? Your tongue has a number of roles uh, which include taste and speech. But one of its biggest roles is um, a thing called intramembrous ossification, which means if you look at the sutures of the maxilla, they have no inherent growth potential, which means that um, uh, there's been classic experiments by Dutaloo and by Murray Meikle uh, and by Petrovic, where they've taken sutures out of the maxilla uh, and transplanted them into another animal model or Petri dish. And, and they really, they don't grow unless they have functional stimulation. So the role of the tongue is to give those sutures the functional stimulation to grow. Uh, and that's how you get normal growth of the maxilla. Uh, the other part of the equation is the, if you look at um, the palate, uh, the people who work above the palate are your enos and throat colleagues, and we work below the palate. So in other words, um, if if the sinuses develop well, that palate develops well as well. So I can show you numerous patients where we've done nothing more than teach that kid how to breathe through the nose after, say, adenoids and tonsils were done, uh, you know, lips together, tongue on the palate, breathe through the nose, and you just you just see this beautiful arch form develop and this really good-looking face. Conversely, look at someone who's like high-angle class two biskeletal retrusive and ask their history of breathing and you, you'll see the correlation. So so the tongue up on the palate kind of um, gives the teeth that equilibrium so the buccinate or the cheek muscle is not squashing it together. Um, and the best video I would get people to look at is uh, a, a video that's on a website called um, kidsmalocclusion.com. And... Um, this video I play every day to parents, and it kind of, uh, I think um, Herman Ramirez uh, did the talk over it, and the graphics are just amazing on it. But um, I can send you the link if you want to kind of, uh, I can't remember. Yeah, off right, yeah. But it, it just shows to what I'm trying to explain in a really visual point of view. You know, it shows a beautiful upper arch, and it says the upper arch forms like this because of the role of the tongue. And the role of the tongue is to sit on the palate and counteract the negative forces of um, uh, the uh, the buccinator. Like th- we all know, I'm sure we all agree that a kid who sucks their thumb for two years or is sucking on a pacifier for two years is not going to develop a normal palate. So if, yeah. you know, if you look at that, everyone understands that and they get that. Why is there any controversy to realize the tongue should be up on your palate? I mean, breastfeeding. We all know the research associated with that and um, 
you can reduce your incidence of crossbite the longer you breastfeed. It's almost like a proportional ratio, wow. right? Uh, wow. Why? Because when you when you breastfeed, your tongue is doing all the work and it's hitting that nipple uh, on the right force on the palate. You can't mouth breathe while you breastfeed. You so you have to breathe through your nose. Your lower jaw has to come forward to catch the milk, um, and that promotes mandibular development. What we call uh, so that's called endochondral ossification. I mean, I mean, I really understand basic biology because I went back and did some, uh, as part of my PhD research, I had to do those basic biology courses again. And I really loved them this time around because when I was that unhappy dental student in year two, I'm going, what the hell is this all about? Um, uh, now, after seeing, you know, 35 years of patients, Going back and really getting into craniofacial biology, I thought, wow, this is just just so amazing. It's like, I don't want to say it's like a God complex, but what other profession in the world allows you to get this ugly duckling kid and transform them into a, a swan by what you know and what you leave? I mean, you know, how, you know I, get, I get parents every day who send me a letter saying, uh, Dr. Mahoney, you may not remember treating Sarah. She was only, uh, you know, nine or ten this is a photo on her wedding day. And I just want to thank you so much. She looks amazing. I never got anyone oh. thank me for that root canal I did. Uh, you know, <laughs> year. Uh, the only letter you get there is from a lawyer or something for the kind of extra, extra canal that you created. But like, you know, I'm being a bit facetious. I mean, dentistry is a wonderful profession, but just not my profession, right? I'm When people ask me, what do I do? I'd like to say I'm a craniofacial biologist before I say I'm an orthodontist. Because what's an orthodontist? I mean, if you ask um, Joe Average what's an orthodontist, they go, oh, yeah, that, that guy straightens teeth, okay? But if you're straightening teeth and you're not looking at airway and you're not looking at facial growth, you might, it's, it's like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. I mean, you, you, you're doomed to failure, right? Yeah. And that's you're what I used to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah, for the first five, six years in, in clinical practice, kind of that's all what I did, right? And yeah, I got straight teeth, but nothing like what we achieve now. And, uh, you know, Tabitha knows a lot about my research. I mean, we we looked at um, nearly 4,000 kids who had malocclusions and we put them through sleep studies to show the correlation and huge correlation. Like, you know, 92% of these kids had airway problems. So if you're an orthodontist, and you're not looking at airway, I mean, you, you're crazy because uh, it's not like one in 10. This this is what it's all about. And I think you guys have been seeing many patients for many years. I'm sure all your listeners who, who've been around long enough would get this and say, yeah. Uh, so, so Tabitha, the question, the, the answer is I don't know why anyone would be resistant to this. Yeah. Um, uh, and you can't in the old days say, well, there's no evidence base to support this, so therefore I'm going to sit on the fence until I see evidence. There's a, a world of evidence to support this by very well-documented uh, studies and, uh, you know, uh, meta-analysis. And I can share, if anyone's interested, the, the thousands of papers I had to read on my uh, research. Um, yeah. Oh, I would love that. <laughs> um, I have a quick, I have a quick question for you. Um, first, I just want to say that I totally resonate with what you said about your first pass through dental school and ortho, because I feel the same way about microbiology. Like I wish I paid better attention back then, or if I could go back now yeah. and yeah. take that course, I would love it because I love the whole pathogenesis related to perio. Yeah. Um, but 
some of the really interesting things is that like I when you said that we're in the US ahead with our screening with the age, I love hearing that, but I feel that the we, we still as a whole do not adopt um, airway myofunctional therapy to the treatment plans within ortho. I'm sure there are practitioners out there doing that, but it's not the common thing right, here in the right. US. Do you so are you are you saying that um are you saying that they want kids to come in at seven and, and their definition of interceptive orthodontics is to intercept that kid before he goes to another orthodontist. <laughs> and, yeah. and they're just kind of just monitoring. <laughs> they're just monitoring that kid until he's old enough to do what they want to do anyway. I don't know. I, I, it, <laughs> it's like watching carries or watching Perio. I yeah, yeah, really yeah. I know. They, yeah, they, yeah. Use, they use a lot of palate expansion yeah, um, good. and yeah. retainers but they don't bring in that myofunctional or airway piece yeah. to it. It's not, yeah. it's not standard here. It's a very foreign, uh, you know, topic and not everybody is aware of it. Um, and, and what I see as a practitioner fast forward this patient now in their, you know, thirties or even their twenties, they've got uh, ortho relapse, malocclusion, bruxism, poor quality sleep, all the things that we see as a result of that. So, my question for you is, as a practitioner who has seen patients like that, what what is the best advice you have for a hygienist to kind of raise awareness within their practice of looking at this from a different perspective? Well, I think I think for a hygienist, um, you're going to have two two areas, right? One is definitely the bruxism, and such a close correlation between poor sleep and bruxism. Uh, and, you know, in the past, what did we do for bruxism? We just gave someone like an occlusal splint. That doesn't fix the bruxism. That's like, mm -hmm. um, and I say to patients, you know, if I see you hitting your head multiple times against a brick wall and I come over and I charge you lots of money for a pillow uh, to cushion um, <laughs> your, your head hitting the brick wall, I would be sued like you wouldn't believe, right? Uh, <laughs> Oh my gosh, I love um, that. But what, what, what are we doing? How many patients have you had who brushed through their splints? Yeah, yeah. like 100%. But, yeah, so, 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 so that's what I say to parents, uh, to patients. You know, I say, listen, let's get a sleep study. Let's kind of figure out what's going on. Why are you bruxing? And even, even people who say it's stress related. Hello, how about if you don't sleep well? Year after year after year, you reckon that's stress? Of course that's stress. Mm. Cortisol release and, you know, uh, and I'll quote um, Jules Levine uh, from University of Montreal. He was that guy who asked that question. What are we doing as dentists? Just um, uh, giving people flat plane splints. And he showed that in some patients who brux because of airway, giving them a flat plane splint worsens their bruxism because it puts their tongue in, in, a, in a less ideal position, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And, and the second thing a hygienist would be looking at is that same patient who comes in in their 30s and 35 and 40s with lower incisor crowding, right? And you've got to clean that crud off the lower incisors. And, and, and then how many have that conversation started? Do you know that we could possibly do something with that lower incising to reduce your chance of periodontal problems to make it easier for you to clean, right? So that's, again, that dental model. Um, so you can look at it as a dental model. You can look at it as a, a bigger picture model. But the bigger picture model is start looking as a hygienist at things outside teeth and gums. Start looking at the malum party index. Start looking at signs and symptoms of um, uh, uh, dry mouth, uh, mouth breathing gingivitis, desiccation of the teeth, uh, you know, uh, large battered uvula 
which is a sign of snoring. Um, you know, there's all these things we can pick up. You know, I, I love the light bulb moment when I lecture, say, to a group of anyone in the dental profession, and I ask them, how do you pick a tongue tie? And there's all these old wives' tales, isn't it? And they go, oh, I'm, uh, and the real answer is, I, I have no clue. That is the honest answer, right? Because it's not something you're taught in dental school. But if you look at the great research by Audrey Yoon and um, uh, Zaruf uh, Zaghi, you, you can see there's a functional position of the tongue. And if your frenum doesn't allow you to reach that functional position, then that is ankyloglossia, but ankyloglossia for a reason. Um, and, you know, you're asking me, what is the protocol? I mean, I follow what they, you're, you're in California. Where, where, where are you located? I'm in, I'm on the East coast. I'm in New Jersey, New Jersey. Okay. Well, there's, there's a, there's an Institute in the U S called the breed Institute. If you ever get the opportunity to do a podcast, get Zarush Zaghi, uh, or, you know, um, uh, with some of his team. I mean, he, he just gets it. He's a sleep physician. Does you qualified as in nose and throat? Uh, but he works a lot with dentists and oral myologists. And the philosophy is really simple. Um, develop the jaw first. Make sure the tongue can sit there without too much effort. And uh, that may mean a, a release of the tongue tie. Uh, and then practice and practice and practice. Lips together. Breathe through your nose, tongue on the palate. And the more you do that, the more you see that development. I mean, even in older people, are you guys familiar with the concept of mewing? No. Yeah, mew mewing is like almost going to be a word in the English dictionary if it's not already. I mean, Google that, right? That's um, that's basically a spin-off of what I'm talking about, but a way of like, okay, like say you're 30 and you want to look a bit better. Well, go to the gym, tone, tone up, right? Okay. What about turning your face? Uh, well, yeah. the muscles you use when you put your tongue on the palate, right, are amazing. They that they, they really do so many changes to the facial development. I was always taught in dental school, by a certain age, your face is not going to grow or you can't influence uh, the, uh, anymore. But look at someone who's 30 and look at them when they're 70 and tell me there's no changes to their facial. Uh, <laughs> come on. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so mewing is a hot topic. And if you could uh, get a chance to speak to one of the guys who – promoted that. Um, his name's Mike Mew. He's the son of uh, the famous author, John Mew, right? And that is really um, what I would call uh, uh, 101 oral myology that makes common sense, right? Um, uh, but unfortunately, the people who are clued up about mewing have, have kind of missed the boat for their ideal time to do that because most of their forward growth is, is finished, right? Whereas if you can get a kid early when that maxilla is about to uh, have its growth, you, the, the essence of facial beauty is that maxilla being in a forward position, right? Mm. And if you use traditional cephalometrics um, and you're only measuring the position of the incisor um, to various landmarks, you, you're never going to see what we see when you measure facial indices, nasal label angle, the cheek angle, uh, and, and all of this. And you'll see how many kids are actually maxillary deficient, not just narrow maxillas, but maxillas that are set too far back. So the more we can do while that maxilla is growing to get the upper jaw to the right dimension that it should have been genetically if there was no uh, environmental factors and in the right position to where it suits the face, man, you've got a good looking face to begin with. Yeah. It was interesting. Yeah, I was that's incredible. I was at a dinner on Friday night and one of the mums that I'm friends with mentioned about her daughter. She said, oh, she grinds really bad at night. And I said, oh, that's actually not 
normal. And um, I said to the little girl, come over here. And I got my iPhone and, and shined the torch in her mouth. And I said, stick your tongue out, let me have a look. And her tonsils were so large. Yeah. And I said, she barely, she barely has any airway space. I'm yeah. like, she needs an ENT consult, like ASAP. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, I'll write you one or go to your GP, but you need to get her to one. And I recommended an ENT in their region. Why do you think we're not making like checking the airways a part of like childhood health? Because there's yeah. so many kids that we could help really early yeah. on if we were checking these airways. You just think, why are we not doing that? Why are we not saying, you know, I, I just feel like if if we got if put that in the blue book that you have an airway checked by a certain age, we have a blue book in Australia, Melissa, like the ex- for the first five years like of the standard time, of care that you, you tick yeah. off, you know, you did this, you got your immunizations, you did that. Like, why don't we have airway and, and having more dental involved in that? Cause I think we could just make such a huge difference in, in children's lives. Oh, I to- totally agree because there's that window and dentists probably will be spending more time with that kid during those years than uh, their physician. Right. Yeah. Um, and I mean, just there's so much link between medicine and dentistry. You know, all those kids who normally present for their first medical um, appointment, other than the blue book, which Tabitha's talking about, which is like, you know, a series of vaccinations and, you know, getting hearing checked and eyes checked or getting you ready for school. Um, uh, but um, the, the concept that I would be saying is that you should be looking at your kids' sleep as part of that blue book, right? Yeah. And it's not just it's not just about oh yeah, my, I put my kid down and he sleeps for ten hours. Yeah. Well, what's his quality of sleep like? And I think you know what's changing things, Tabitha. Every second parent has a Fitbit now, right? Yeah. I wouldn't exactly call that you know science based, but at least they're 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 aware um, of you know uh, what to look at. And I think the simplest thing you could get a parent to do, particularly the sort of like. Um, what I call the flat earth society parent, you know, they go, oh, no, this is all BS, uh, this, my kid's not that, that. Just get them to measure their kid's oxygen during sleep. That's a, mm. a real easy one. And, you know, on the internet, you can buy really good quality pulse oximeter, uh, like uh, LED things for 50 bucks. And just put that on the kid and see how close they are to like 99% oxygen throughout the night. And, you know, in a hospital, if you drop below 90%, they're going to put uh, oxygen supplementation on you. Yeah. You drop below 80%, they're thinking, you know, hyperbaric medicine. Um, uh, there's so many kids, when I give um, uh, the parents this, you know, uh, this uh, pulse oximeter, they come back and they go, oh, my God, Dr. Mahoney, you were so right, my kid, blah, blah, blah. And then they become the person that really is searching. Look, all mums, they have this inherent... I know what's good for my kid. You know, uh, dads forget about it. Like, you know, you ask you ask a dad two questions. Number one, you know, why are you here? And he goes, because, uh, you know, my wife couldn't make it. Then you ask something like, um, and how old is your kid? And he looks at the kid and he goes, six, Johnny, something like that. Like, moms, they know <laughs> when that kid um, first fell down and, you know, got that little scar on the thing. So, so moms know when their kid's not, doing the normal stuff, right? But if you could educate mums on what to look for in good sleep and poor quality sleep, that's a huge, that's a huge big one, right? Because, you know, the kids who are getting diagnosed with ADHD, 
at seven or eight. It's not as though that problem started then. That started like much earlier with their, with their sleep cycle. And I think, you know, Shireen Lim in WA, right, Tabitha? I mean, yeah. she is now pushing the she's, – she's expanding four-year-old palates because she's saying, why wait till seven just because the first molars are there? And, and, and in the U.S., uh, we have a lot of pediatricians who are doing similar stuff. So um, – and they're not doing it for teeth. They're doing it for airway and breathing. But having said that, if I asked a new graduate dentist or in your um, podcast, maybe a newly graduated hygienist, describe the ideal arch form – of a kid who's primary dentition, how many of them would know that there needs to be gaps between all the primary teeth? Most yeah. of them would say, oh, well, you know, no crowding, uh, normal bite, but this is the deal. Like a primary incisor compared to an adult incisor, a huge difference. So if you don't have that, and when I look at kids who've had like proper breastfeeding and haven't used a pacifier and are sleeping well at night, you just see these beautiful arch forms, which you almost have to Google search for because you don't see them in clinical practice. And the problem is starting as early as four and five. You know, so I even find that sometimes at seven when I expand, I'm, I might be a bit too late in, as far as their healthcare. You know, when a kid doesn't sleep well, and this is really important for people to um, research, um, an average kid uh, would have an IQ of 90, right? Uh, if you are got... If you've got poor sleep or worse sleep apnea, you could lose five to 10 IQ points per year. Now, if it takes you two, wow. three years to figure out your kid's got that problem, that kid is always going to be behind everyone else. And that cognitive development, they'll never catch up on. You know what I mean? It's yeah. such an important wow. thing. You know, look at the research by David Gazal. Um, uh, from University of Michigan, he's done all these biometric tests on kids who have good sleep and poor sleep, and he shows huge uh, mapping uh, pathways in that neuroprotective uh, performance and and the drop in the IQ. I mean, what parent wants their kid to be in the bottom of their class all their life, right? So I agree, Tabitha. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, I mean, you you really need to, and and I reckon dental hygienists are the gatekeepers of the airway because I mean, you're probably seeing yeah. in the mouth for a longer period of time at an early age than any other uh, part of our, uh, what other profession would have that ability. But what hygienists need to really get off and learn is what are they looking for, right? I mean, you know, uh, yeah. forget, forget the whole, you know, uh, what, what what's the kid eating, how much sugar, um, uh, you know, is he brushing well, is he flossing, you know. We, yeah, that's all important, right? But it fails into insignificance if that kid has poor sleep and not getting the right oxygenation to the brain. That's just a huge, huge thing. And, you know, I just feel that, you know, when I'm dead and buried, people are going to remember me for one thing, and that is pick up the airway problems in kids as soon as you can. Number two, it's not normal for your kid to snore, right? So for less than $100, US every parent can equip themselves with a pulse oximeter to measure the kid's oxygenation sleeping and an app, like something like Snore Lab. There's like six or seven yeah. on the market um, where they put that phone next to the kid and they literally get, you know, and remember, this is not a sleep study. That's that's what I'm saying. But it's, it's a great way of throwing out the net. Now, how about all your hygienists learn about Bear's questionnaire? And as part of their initial screening, get the parents to fill out that questionnaire. And if that questionnaire, which is nine questions that the parent answers, um, 
comes back nine out of nine, yes, or eight out of nine, yes, that makes you look a little bit closer. This kid does have a sleep problem. What can I do about it? How can I help? And, and this is the closest, I think, uh, dentistry and medicine work uh, side by side. It's just a huge, huge um, uh, field. So, yeah, let's hope, Tabitha. What, what's Martin Luther King's um, famous speech? I have a dream. Yeah. Right? Uh, I yeah. dream one day that every health professional will be clued up in sleep for children. And, and, and what are the ramifications of poor quality sleep in children? That's just a big, big um, thing on, on the healthcare you know, budget. And what do you think okay. about, um, I did read a book called Lights Out. And um, what do you think about like uh, like the way we're kind of got kids on screens and devices interrupting their sleep and, and causing issues as well? Yeah, so um, there's a part of the eye which um, regulates uh, the balance between um, the hormones that make you ready to sleep and those who wake you up, right? Um, so uh, natural melatonin is produced through the back of the retina when everything is dark. So if you think back to caveman, caveman probably didn't have sleep apnea. Why? Dude had to go to bed as soon as it was dark. And what 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 woke him up? Uh, what woke him up was the first bit of light because he didn't have a a, a, a a curtain on the front of his yeah. cave, right? Uh, maybe dude didn't sleep too well if he heard T-Rex wandering around. In the <laughs> but, but, yeah, so you, you, you talk about circadian rhythm yeah. and, and, and the whole thing. So, like, I know myself, I do a lot of flying, and I have these special glasses that put me into a different circadian rhythm depending on where I'm going to. I don't suffer from jet lag because I understand how to switch. Um, and this is the thing. There's so many kids. Uh, now, now, you know, Tabitha, um, you know, it's really sad for us in a well-developed country like Australia to have statistics like highest use of um, Ritalin than any other country in the world per capita, highest rate of teenage suicide than any other uh, um, country in the world. Why? I mean, th this is stuff that you really need to question uh, yeah. what's going on here. Um, and you look at some people like, who've done the research, Professor Ian Hickey from the Black Dog Institute, he, he talks about kids. Think about your average teenager, right? What time are they going to bed? They're going to bed one, two in the, uh, yeah. in the morning, and they're going to bed yeah. watching their iPad or their eye something um, that's mm -hmm. eliminating this blue light, which is the wrong light to get you into circadian rhythm. It's almost the opposite. Uh, dare I say this, Tabitha, now that I really know what I'm talking about, I say to parents, don't get your kid to brush their teeth just before they go to bed because – when you turn the light on in the bathroom, that's almost the, the brightest light in the house, okay? Now, all of a sudden, you're trying to get yourself ready to go to sleep, and what are you doing? You're turning on this bright light for five minutes or so, and that's affecting your ability to go to sleep. So that's a more simple sort of thing. Um, uh, so it's, it's really – and um, if you look at the new airplanes, Tabitha, you spend a lot of time yeah, in the light, the lights change now. Exactly. Too, yeah, yeah, they change the light based on that. So th there's, there's a lot of research. I think – uh, I think the topic, uh, Tabitha, is called sleep hygiene, right? So in yeah, other words, uh, you know, what can you do to encourage your kid to go to bed at a certain time and get ready to go to sleep, um, what we call sleep latency? You should be able to fall asleep between 5 and 15 minutes. Anything less than 5, that's a high chance you have sleep apnea and you're exhausted. Anything more than 15, you have some form of parasomnia uh, that, you know, is – or sorry, insomnia – 
Um, so yeah, sleep latency. Uh, do you have to get up to go to the toilet during your sleep? Um, you know, do you feel refreshed when you wake up? You know, there's all these questions that we can be asking our parents about their kids. That's what the Bears questionnaire is all about. But the big one is, you know, all those people who say, oh, yeah, I need to have two or three espressos to get going in the morning. Why? Why is that? Right? Yeah. The, you know, um, if you, this might sound weird, Tabitha, but if you put your iPhone in front of your eye and, flat, and turn the flash on three or four times, that's more than a couple of espressos as far as getting... Um, your serotonin uh, uh, working, right? Uh, I so, don't yeah. caffeine, and I don't think the world could handle me with caffeine. No one wants to see me caffeinated. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, I love it. I love it. But yeah, it's interesting though because I've always had a lot of trouble sleeping. I don't sleep very well. I I find it hard to get to sleep, but. I've been to a lot of Derek's education courses and I went to one and we talked about sleep hygiene and I've had a lot more success getting to sleep when I followed the things that he has said. So eliminating, you know, the the lights and the TV for a certain amount of time before I go to bed and then I have a warm shower and get into like a cooler room and like drop that body temperature really quickly and it makes me super tired. And, um, and, and I removed the television from the bedroom. Because yeah. Derek said in his courses, only two things should happen in bedroom. <laughs> 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 or something with your partner. They're the only two things allowed. <laughs> I took the TV out of the room, like he said, and it actually really did help with my sleep because I was turning the TV on to go to bed every night and and just staying up for hours. And it's and it's definitely helped yeah. not having that in there anymore. Um, Derek, I, I have a question for you as far as, like for a hygienist who doesn't know much about Mal and Patty, can you just do a real quick um, like introduction to it and, and let us know where we can get more information to start integrating that? Yeah, so Malapati Index is very well referenced um, and you could just Google search lots of yeah. diagrams. But basically what it is and where people get it wrong, um, some hygienists will get their um, mouth mirror and push the tongue down to do the Malapati Index. That's actually incorrect. That's more like a Friedman classification look at the tonsils where you need to press the tongue down. Mountain party is literally, you just get the kid to say, ah, and as they say, ah, you're quickly visualizing the area of the um, palate. And you're seeing how much dark area there is there, right? So a Mountain party of four is no dark area. In other words, literally their tongue and their soft palate are connected, right? Um, mm -hmm. So that, that's, that's um, and it's, a, you know, the guy who developed it, he was a very famous, um, anesthetist and he realized that when he was scoping people to put the money for ga those who had the the worst response uh and, and he worked out uh those would be high candidates of sleep apnea and so it's a it's actually a score that a lot of sleep physicians and gps use to predict sleep apnea but as i said you can use it at any age and it's a, it takes you an extra two seconds right, right uh, as right. does looking at the size of the tonsil do you know what i mean um in my entire career, I've saved, I think, 14 lives, uh, not by giving them a class one canine relationship, uh, but by uh, seeing that they had unilaterally enlarged tonsils, right? So if you have a kid whose one side is normal, the other side's huge, that's a high chance of lymphoma or something even more dangerous. Uh, you know, so if you know what you're looking for that's normal, anything that sticks out abnormal is, is an early sign, right? So if you're not looking at the tonsils, you're really selling that kid, um, you know, short of things that you could pick up early. And as Tabitha was saying, that, you know, those kissing tonsils, were, um, it's frustrating 
when you speak to some older Enos and throat guys who say, unless that kid has five episodes of tonsillitis yeah. a year, I'm not going to do anything. But we're not, these yeah. are not infected tonsils. We're not talking tonsillitis. We're talking enlarged tonsils that are blocking the airway. It's all about the airway, right? Mm -hmm. And when yeah. I say to a parent, look, if your kid has that tongue blocking their airway, their sleep is like this. Imagine you just get to sleep, mum, and I ring you one hour um, uh, as soon as you've got to sleep, and then I ring you 30 minutes, and then ring you another hour, and you're waking up every time I ring, and then I hang up as soon as you wake up and you go back to bed. That's your kid, right? Yeah. And, of course, you know, the parent goes, ah, oh, I get that. Geez, that would be terrible sleep. I say, well, your son's doing that night after night. Let's prove it to ourselves. Let's get an oxygen saturation test. And then if you really want the room, of course, let's do a proper sleep study to see what's going on with this kid. Um, and half these problems can be resolved with enos and throat, but that's not the only thing that they need because there's so much residual airway problems after enos and throat removal because you can, you can clear the plumbing, but the kid's still used to mouth breathing. So yeah, the, the yeah. thing people have got to understand, and where I see a lot of hygienists, I think more so in the USA, they're, they're following along that um, oral myology model, you know, um, and, and, and they're learning about how to exercise the muscles that collapse uh, during uh, apnea. Because one thing is clearing the plumbing. The other thing is the structural bit, which is what I do, getting the jaws in the right size and the right position. But the most important thing, right, is rehabilitating that airway by changing the tone of the muscle. And anyone uh, can learn oral myology, but I think that we already have a head start because we have a good understanding of muscles of mastication and the oral environment. I think hygienists are the ultimate uh, pathway people to, to do um, oral myology. And there's so many great courses. When people ask me in Australia, like where can I learn really good oral myology? I, I recommend like, you know, uh, Sandra Coulson, um, uh, uh, Joy Mola, you know, all these people who've come from a um, hygiene background but have, through various education, put together great programs. And it's so rewarding, so rewarding. I guess the biggest frustration, and maybe I can talk on Tabitha's behalf, of it, when you get that really switched-on hygienist like Tabitha is, and then you get this dead-end job with someone who has no idea about airway, and then you constantly kind of... You know, that, that can be a little bit frustrating, right? Very frustrating. Um, <laughs> preach that, Darren. Yeah. You, yeah. Yeah. When I do courses, I always, like, have this sort of, like, bring the dental team, right? Mm, We're all going to yeah. learn this together. You know, when I, when I go and do some amazing course and I come back all excited, I try and share that excitement with my staff. And you know what they do? They roll their eyes and go, oh, shit, um, uh, Let's hope he forgets about that because we have to go and change <laughs> our whole routine. Uh, you, you know what I mean? Whereas if they're there with you, yeah. seeing, seeing what you've learned, they come back just as into it. You know what? It might even change the way we practice. So this is the thing, right? Uh, so, look, hygienists, yes, there's so much world of opportunity to, to go there. But then be a bit more discerning when you apply for your next job. Like look at what Dr. DDS is doing. If he's doing nothing about airway, I mean – you're going to get a little bit frustrated uh, there, right? And, like, I now have restricted myself to um, specialist periodontal practice working, but I still look at airways and I use my functional because I'm qualified my functional therapy. I still use all of that in perio. So I think you can use it in any aspect of dentistry because yep. I look at patients and say, 
Like I had a patient just recently and I said, you don't have traditional biofilm metadata perio. You have six millimeter pockets on your sixes because you're grinding and you have an airway issue and I am yeah. not I am not your fix. Yeah. You, right. you oh, great. Yeah. Airway. I said the reason why you're bouncing around from perios and no one can figure out the problem is because you can't breathe. Yeah. And yeah. he he just looks at me and he goes, "What?" And I said, "I see these six millimeter pockets on your on your all your sixes, but you don't have any biofilm." Yeah. I said, but I can, I'm looking in your throat and you've got no airway space yeah. and, you've, and you're wearing a flat splint and you can't breathe and you're making it worse. Yeah. And he goes, what? And I said, I'm going to send you to an ENT, but I'm going to send you to one who's switched on. So like I wrote an ENT referral. He went off there. He came back and he's like, oh my gosh, I have sleep apnea and I have all these problems. And I was like, yeah, I know. And um, I was like, I knew you had these issues. I could yeah. see them. And we had all his pockets resolved from treating his airway issues. Yeah. See, that's, that's such a good, that is such a good clinical example of, absolutely, absolutely. Because, yeah, yeah so I think no matter what area of dentistry you're doing, you don't have to be working in orthodontics to be wanting to think full body and about airways and about everything like that because I think no matter what you're doing, it really can relate back and be causing issues and you can really be helping those patients. And, you know, a patient with airway issues well, I need a patient when they've got biofilm meditated perio. Yeah, I can remove the biofilm, but I need the inflammation to reduce. Well, a patient that can't breathe, I can't get your inflammation to reduce when your whole body is in inflammation from how run down you are and you're not sleeping. So that airway is going to help every single patient, no matter what aspect you're coming at. So I just think it should really be part of standard of care of education for us. Yeah, oh, and it's bigger picture. Yeah. It's like treating that person from a holistic standpoint in the sense of looking at the whole human being and how it's all yeah. affected. And the thing too is that there's so much we could do for our patients that are non-invasive, but yeah. just because it's like legacy thinking and we keep teaching the same thing over and over again and not really having this kind of information be forefront in academia yeah. all over the world, that's why we're still doing this old fashioned way of drill, fill, bill. And, you know, oh, you have perio, go over to the periodontist and, and let's cut your gums. And, oh, well, you still have a problem. You know, it's like we're not taking the, the load rest, road less traveled and actually yeah. healing people. You yeah. know, we have the opportunity to do that. Well, I have to thank you, Derek, because I didn't learn any of that stuff at, at uni. I learned it off you. You know, Tabitha, what, what I... What makes me the most happy is when one of my students has picked up some problem in a kid, and I, 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 uh, I think you know Kurt. Uh, he, he's a, a young graduate, and he came to one of my courses just on uh, bruxism in kids, right? And two days later, he had that sort of four-year-old that knackered down uh, all the deciduous teeth, and he said to the parent, "Like, you know, your kid has a serious airway problem." Um, and referred to an enos and throat. The enos and throat did the tonsils and adenoids. And at six monthly um, recall visit, the mom called that guy a lifesaver. She said, yeah. I had no idea my kid had all these problems, but once we resolve the adenoids and tonsils, he's sleeping better, he doesn't grind his teeth. I just want to thank you so much. And, and that mom is never going to leave that practice. You know what I mean? They're yeah. not going to shop mm -hmm. around for like who's doing the, um, the, the cheapest scales and cleans in town. Uh, they are going to say, we're going to go there because that person looked beyond the teeth. That's what it's all about, right? Maybe that Absolutely. one day, yeah. you know, if there's that amazing 
university in, in Australia and that amazing university in the US um, that teaches dentistry, but dentistry uh, where teeth come second right? yeah. uh, and airway comes yeah. first. That would be a program that I'd be really proud to donate my time and services uh, to, to build. Uh, and, you know, what's that, um, what's that famous uh, Kevin Costner movie, The Field of Dreams, right? You just yes, build it, build and, it they and they will come. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and that, that, that's what I hope. And, you know, when you talk to people who've done the education and now see it every day in their patients, they go, oh, my God, why, why um, weren't we taught this earlier? Because this is not just one in 100 kids. This is like every second kid we see. Um, yeah. And so, by you know, by word of mouth, by you guys doing what you're doing on this um, podcast, uh, by me lecturing, uh, by, by the more conversation starters you have with parents, uh, with people in the profession, the more it will change. I don't think you can just sit back and wait for organized dentistry to make a ruling that this should be part of the curriculum because we'll be dead and buried by the time <laughs> that happens. Right? Uh, yeah. And if you see people who run organized dentistry, you know, they're not exactly spring chickens. Uh, <laughs> and I think, uh, like, a, a, like, a lot of them aren't even in dentistry anymore. Do you know what right, I mean? Yeah, so, right, uh, yeah. so they're making, they're legislating and making rules for the rest of the profession. And you know, I'm, I'm just getting on my political high horse here, but it should almost be a change of guard, shouldn't it? Right? Like, yeah, uh, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, but that's. I like, I like what you said. Going back, you know, that we're like putting that airway first because we have to think like when you think about high caries patients. Yes, they're eating sugar. But why are they eating sugar? Are they eating yeah. sugar because they're so tired at three o'clock in the afternoon because exactly. they're not right. eating? Like, right. so, yeah. You know, we really need you to reverse just, engineer it. Yeah, yeah. And we need to really figure out what the, the root cause is all the time instead of just going, oh, well, it was obviously sugar. Eat better. Yeah. Well, why are they not eating well? Why are they sugar loading at a certain time? You know, it's not always that issue, but like, is it this issue? Why, what is the big picture here? And really digging in and, and having a look, I think that we can not just fix a problem when we see it, but yeah. but actually heal the patient and, and look at that full body. And um, it's, a, it's a full circle because the, the poorer your sleep is, the less the more disruption between your gruelin and leptin, yeah. which controls your appetite. So not only you're not sleeping well, you're more hungry. You literally are always wanting to eat. Then you yeah. put on weight and that worsens your sleep. And there you go, round and round, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yep. uh, so, yeah, ab ab absolutely, ab absolutely. What do you think? And then there's um, the, oh, sorry, go on, Melissa. I was just going to add in, I'm, I haven't finished it yet, but I'm reading the book Jaws, and that hits on the point that we're eating so much processed food that our facial harmony is and bone structuring is yeah. being modified because of that yeah, as well. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, well, that kind of goes back to West Price's um, research, doesn't it? Uh, you know, yeah. not that all of his research was overly ethical with the, the separating the two. <laughs> <laughs> But there was some quite good information that came out of that, you yeah. know, the genetics of, of how we're eating and changing the way we're doing things and stuff. And like I mean, that. You, you look at um, the average newborn, uh, they very rarely breastfed. They're on bottle formula because it's just easy. Um, then um, it, even mums who express uh, and then feed the kid uh, through a bottle, it's the, it's the teeth. It's just as bad because they're developing that tongue trust habit, right? And then mm. what happens when the kid's um, old enough uh, and they go off to, you know, preschool or kindy, et cetera, or, you know, 
again, look at the foods that they're sent off with. They're almost like space age tube stuff, right? So right. The, 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 the ability to masticate is really gone. And I mean, I've read some really good, that book you just referenced, you know, people don't realize this, but if you really want to get your muscles a workout, you should be um, chewing each bolus of food 30 times before you swallow it, right? Sometimes I watch people like um, uh, in a restaurant and, and literally it's two no. bites and bang, right? It's uh, called working mothers. That's how they eat, okay? <laughs> or, or yeah, dental hygienists in general, like we have to, we have like five seconds to inhale our food, so we have yeah. a very bad habit of yeah, yeah, extremely. Yeah. It's so bad for you though because you're not doing the digestion properly, and it causes so many issues. Yeah, absolutely, and 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 the workout you're giving those facial muscles when you chew, which is that sort of whole mewing concept. Uh, mewing is not just about. Um, good nasal breathing, getting your tongue in the palate. It's also about mastication. You've got to do X number of repetitive exercises. Like, you, you know, everyone knows if you go to a gym and you work out, you tone yourself, right? What about working out your muscles of mastication? Yeah. And they're the important muscles for facial um, beauty, aren't they? Right? Yeah, so, well, that's um, there's a good book for like new parents that might be listening, which is called Baby Led, Baby Led Weaning, where they don't believe in pureeing anything ever. And right. I did it with my son. And so you yeah. just put solid food in front of them and they'll figure it out. Yeah. They'll, yeah. you know, because they've got a good gag reflex, they'll, it'll actually work really well. And you never puree a thing. Yeah. Like, ever. that's true. So true. Yeah. And they just teach them to eat like harder food, develop the jaw. Um, and they really talk. And so in this book, it talks about jaw development. And if we just give them those pouches that they just suck on, like it's ruining the jaw muscles all the yeah. time and stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and I think we've become a convenient society, haven't we? A hundred percent. And then you see that, I suppose we see that problem again, Derek, talking about that muscle, like what do we do to people in nursing homes? We give them yeah. soft pureed food and, and then they're just losing that muscle tone faster and faster. And not only that, we, we, used to, fall out. we actually tell them, take your dentures out when you fall asleep, uh, when you go to sleep. And what does that do? That collapse their airway even more right uh oh. this yeah, sort of stuff i was sort of middle school they should never take their denture out correct if, if it's a sleep apnea patient yeah absolutely because it particularly yeah. if that denture is made at the right vertical dimension because that's what's preventing their airway from collapsing right mm. um oh my gosh Derek, quite, this has been uh, working in implant practices when you've seen patients that have lost their teeth from bruxism and then they're replaced with implants wow and then like, why are all the implants failing and you're like Really? Do I need to explain this? <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy. The things that we do in dentistry are just sometimes when we step back and look at it, we're like, wow, that was really stupid. Why, why are we doing it this way, you know? Derek, I want to thank you for your time. This was such like a, an hour packed with so much information. You've got my gears rolling. I kept on opening um, browsers while you were talking about certain things right. to go back and research. <laughs> thank you so much. I am just like, oh my gosh, this for me, it's the beginning of my day and you got me like all psyched up to go kill it today. Thank you. Cool. No, right. we want to thank you, Derek, for making a massive commitment to um, changing the way we think in dentistry. Yeah. And, and for those who are listening in some other countries around the world that may not know, 
Derek, um, he does a lot of education. He runs an education business and he educates dentists all around the world. You know, prior to COVID, well, you're on a plane overseas every month, Derek, educating. Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, so he travels all around the world educating and he really is saving lives and changing lives around the world. And we really thank you for the positive influence you're making in that health space. I don't want to say orthodontic yes. space, space of health. Yeah. And bringing the medical side into um, orthodontics instead of it just being an interior designer. We, we're very thankful. <laughs> <laughs> you do so much more than making the social six. Oh yeah. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I definitely am going to watch you because when you're over here on the East Coast, I'm going to come meet you and, and learn more from you. So thank you so much. Hey, thank you again so much for tuning into the Disrupting Dentistry podcast. We love to hear from you viewers and we love that you join us for our episodes. Please make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And leave us a review. We love reading reviews from all over the world. It's one of the things that actually makes all the hard work feel really worth it when we get to see which episode you're enjoying or some feedback that you give. So leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or write something on our Facebook or our Instagram page. We'd love to hear from you. And thanks so much for listening. Keep on disrupting.